praise the Lord this morning. It's such a privilege to have been here among you in these day, weeks that we've been together. This, in, this period of transition, our trials in the wilderness, all of that, whatever you wish to call it, we'll sanctify it in Jesus' name. We are here, praise the Lord, at the edge of the river, ready to cross into the new land, the new year, the new decade, the new century, the new life. As I stand before you this morning, I christen in Jesus' name this decade as the decade of new praises to God. Amen? Amen. You know, praise has become meaningful in my life. I'm such a depressant person, awful to be around in my dark moods. But praise has brought me out of those moods, and he's given me purpose and meaning in life. And I'm very grateful for those who taught me how to praise God how from the heart to reach down deep into my being and bring all of those turmoil of emotions and things that we go through in life uh, as we speculate about life, bring them up and put them on a dish of praise and offer them to God. Paul said we should be anxious for nothing but by everything with thanksgiving make our petitions known to God. That's the attitude of the saint, of the believer, and I want to be one of those. As I look at this decade, I realize this decade is very important to some of us, all of us. It's important to all of us who remain here, and it's important to us who might be called within the next 10 years into the absolute glory of our Lord. I'm at 83 now. If God allows me to live to 93, I'll make it with you into the next decade. But I could very well graduate into that for which our hearts long. And that isn't the glorious presence of our Lord. So it's become so important as we live and understand how good God is to us. That so important to learn how to praise him day by day. And that's what we should do today. I look out over this congregation, quite a few people here today. I see hopeful people. I see people who survived. I see people who've come through hard times. I see a core for this church who maintain a consistency of expectancy in God. And at this decade, we're going to see, I believe, good things for this fellowship. That it may be a beacon on this pike to those who pass by. That it may be a light to this part of the world, which will go out into all the world. Looking back on my years of ministry, I'll tell you, we started with nothing. And we lived through hard times. And we saw all sorts of shifts in trials. We had a variegation of congregation we, in the Washington, D.C. area. And today, when I uh, have any contact with any of my people that I've known through the years, I can tell you the tapestry of what God has done is wonderful. So hang on to the moment and give thanks to God for what he's doing now, and you'll survive for tomorrow. And you'll have not only survival, you will transcend your lower estate into God's better estate in Christ Jesus. So those are the cheap sermon. That's not charged. I won't charge you for that one. But I want you to understand where we are. We're in the opportunity time of crossing over like the people of Jordan did into the new land. And here we should at least establish, uh, what's the word? What, what was that thing? Ebenezer. We're going to pile up a pile of rocks right here, right? And in Jesus' name say, thank you, Lord. This marks a new beginning as we cross over 
into a new land and a new day and a new era, for we are the people of the new world coming. Amen. That's the kingdom, you know. Uh, this morning, I wanted to give myself something simple. I was going to try to address you in a, a very plain way, because that's what the Lord kind of put on my heart. Preach on the Lord's Prayer. It's just like a word. I can never dive into the word in any measure without getting drowned in the glory of it. I, I find myself this morning almost speechless as I ask God, show me how to communicate the glory of this prayer. It's richness. It's, it's vitality and it's life. And in that vein, I'm going to ask you this morning to pray with me. Oh, one more thing I want to say. Thank you, Matthew. We have a gift in this man here. And, all, and so many of you who have brought us through this hour. I, I appreciate him. And I heard him move this morning as he prayed. Because he prays from the heart. He's a man of prayer. He's steadfast. He's been faithful. And I pray God's blessing on you, Matthew. You're a special man to me, brother. And you're a special man to these people. And that needs to be acknowledged as we acknowledge all of you who brought us to this hour. Let us pray. Holy God, what can we say? How can we pray? What can we know apart from what you have shown us? This morning, just show us a little bit of the gloriousness of this simple prayer you have given us, that we might learn to pray plainly, simply, in faith, with thanksgiving. In your name we pray. Amen. I remember the day, decade 1940s, late 1940s, I don't know exactly when, my mother realized she had a task on hand to raise me and my brother. She became convicted that she had to teach us some things that were important and establish a trust in us of uh, grounding in, 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 in spiritual things. And she had been admonished by a sister of hers who uh, thought we boys needed some discipline and some direction by her sister, and she took it to heart, took us aside, and began to teach us simple things. First thing she taught us is how to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I remember times praying one time in my youth with, with my family, a time of desperate need. When we knew nothing else to pray, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. And how that comforted us through the hour that we were going through. She taught us how to the Apostles' Creed. And then she started reading Scripture stories to us. And it admonished us not to take just what she has showed us, because she felt so inadequate, to pay attention in Sunday school, to listen to what they were saying, to treat church seriously and reverently, to believe uh, in what we heard and learn to trust it and to read it ourselves. That doesn't make my mother saint. My mother struggled a lot with her life, at, even to the very end. But her heart was right in the right direction, and she, I believe, is in glory with the Lord by His grace and mercy. And I stand here close to the, well, older than she was when she passed away, 
having the privilege of talking about the things she taught me. The Lord's Prayer is one of them. Many of you may remember the first time you prayed that prayer. How precious it has been in our culture. I'm not sure our culture knows this prayer anymore. It's a simple prayer. It's easily understood, easily appreciated, and it grows and grows on you, just as it did when I got into it again. I'm overwhelmed with the profundity of these words. I don't want to overstate it. You can't overstate anything but God's word anyway, I guess, so I don't have to even apologize. It's an overwhelming prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. So I'm going to talk about a few facts and just throw those out here, a little instructive stuff. Then I'm going to try to enlarge on that in terms of the emotional impact this should have upon us. First thing we can say about the Lord's Prayer is interesting to me that there are two versions of it. One to a crowd, massive crowd that Jesus said, when you pray, say this. And it's quite different and more or longer than the one he gave his disciples, which we heard this morning. I, I'm going to ultimately amalgamate these, bring these together as I end my sermon. But we're going to focus largely, and most largely, on the one he said to his disciples. It's a shorter prayer. But in it is implied all the things he put in the larger, longer prayer in Matthew's gospel. We heard from Luke when his disciples came to Jesus. Now listen to this. This is amazing. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. One time when Jesus was praying, the disciples said, Come, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Now, you would think that Jesus who prayed constantly, was in communion with the Father, who checked himself in on a regular basis with the Father, be sure he was still attuned to the Spirit of God and his Father, that he was still acting in his Father's will, who was in continual prayer with God, in conversation with God when he wasn't in conversation with someone else. You would think that Jesus would say, first thing, guys, I'm going to teach you how to pray, because that's the source of your inspiration and your life. But Jesus didn't do that. Why? They had to come to Jesus. They had to walk with him for a while. They had to listen to his teaching. Now, they were there for a reason. They believed he had the words of God. Peter confessed that. Who else have the words of life but you? But they had to come to Jesus and say, Lord, will you please teach us how to pray? the way John taught his disciples. Now, I don't know what was in their mind. Maybe they wanted to be competitive. But I think they saw that there was something missing in their life, and they felt inadequate. There was a lady I knew in Northern Virginia who had a lot of influence in my life, largely because I was down the hall from her business, and she sent people from her business to me to counsel and to talk with and to share Christ with when she had someone in need. And her business was simply this. It wasn't her business, it was God's business. She was a member of a prayer group and was challenged to find out what God's mind was for her and she believed God had called her to open a Christian bookstore with Christian workers in it and to preach the gospel through that Christian bookstore to people who came by out of the marketplace to buy books. 
And she did that. It was called the vine and the fig tree. You know where it was? You, you know the area. Bailey's Crossroads. Right there. Where, where Bailey used to bring his elephants and, 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 you know, in camp during the winter uh, before he went out on tours with the Bonham and Bailey Circus. Right in the center of the heart of the Arlington area at that time it was. And she opened this little bookstore in a wilting uh, shopping center called the Wilson Shopping Center. And me and my friend who was starting new churches we merged together to share an office space. He had his little office, I had mine, and we had a shared secretary and so forth. And so we had a place for saints to converge. Someone go to her store, ask for prayer, respond to the message. She sent them down the hall to us, and we would pray with them and counsel them and do what we could. And it was the beginning of a terrific work in our fellowship in Northern Virginia and his fellowship in North Virginia. Vine the fig tree, an idea she had. She was a spiritual woman. She was an earthy woman. That's why we got along, because I'm earthy. But she was down to earth, and she was an all-business person, and had a great sense of humor about life, and she was self-effacing, and there was wonderful things about her that made me realize this woman knows how to pray. So I asked her to head up a prayer group and was shocked when she said, well, I'd like to do that, but frankly, I don't know if I know how to pray. I love that. I love that. Because it shows that she understood the profundity of talking with God, but she still, at the same time, Understood God was her father and her daddy and her Abba, daddy God. You know, that he was friendly and loving and giving and benevolent. She understood that, but she never felt worthy. Who does feel worthy? That's why we need a simple prayer. Now, I hope that all of you enlarge in your prayer life as you enlarge in the understanding of Scripture, the verbiage to give to God to remind him, you know who he is. Oh Lord, you're the life, the way, the truth, the life, you know. You can add these phrases that the scriptures tell you about God in your prayers. You can enrich your prayers with the knowledge of, of, of theology that you're learning in church, in the Bible, all of that. It should. But you need a simple prayer. There are times when you need nothing but a simple prayer. And that's what Jesus gave his disciples, the simplest of prayers. And it's so profound. It is a theological course in a nutshell. Don't you ever think it's just a bunch of phrases. You go behind those words. You go behind those concepts in that prayer. And you will get an instruction in theology that's sufficient. Everything Jesus said was simple. And it was sufficient. But you get behind it and you realize it's also profound. And that's why we study the Bible, is to get the meaning behind it, the history behind it, the story behind all of those phrases. So the Lord's Prayer is simple. And I have found there were times in recent years, not long ago, when 
things were tough emotionally. And I did not know how to pray. I had no enthusiasm for prayer. And I prayed the Lord's Prayer. It could be called the Disciples' Prayer, by the way. It could be called the Our Father Prayer. It could be called almost anything you want to. We call it the Lord's Prayer in general and understand what we mean. It's a profound prayer. And it was appreciated very widely. Very widely. I'll give you two more things out of the culture. I don't know why I have to give you this. I mean, because I just like to talk. Uh, you know, we talk out of the richness of our lives, and I hope that out of that somebody will trail along. Two things I remember about the Lord's Prayer was a John Wayne movie. Uh, I think it was the one, one of his movies, A Soldier Gets Wounded. Some of you may remember this scene. And being a young boy, this was very impressionable, because I love war movies, still do, uh, reading about these heroes of the past and all that stuff that we call heroic. The soldier was dying, and, and I think it was John Wayne, comes and cradles his head in his arm. It was Iwo Jima. Cradled his head in his arm and prays with him the Lord's Prayer as the soldiers died. How dramatic. The culture then accepted that kind of thing. The culture, uh, you know, thrived on that type of thing because uh, we were more knowledgeable of Christian things then. The other time I remember was when I was in the late 40s, a young boy under my mother's tutelage, just beginning on these things. And I heard the most profound and simple um, explanation of the Lord's Prayer on the radio. And just two days ago, I decided to find out on the Internet if I could find the script for that. It was Amos of Amos and Andy on Christmas Eve, putting his daughter, Arbadella, to bed, and she can't sleep because she's so excited about Christmas Day, and she says, Daddy, uh, playing the Lord's Prayer, she said, Daddy, will you tell me what this means? And in this account of the radio program, Arbadella listens to her daddy as phrase by phrase is being sung in the background, what it means phrase by phrase. By the way, I encourage you to look that up for homework. Arbadella or Amos and Andy program, The Lord's Prayer. And you'll find it. And if you don't, I'll, I've got a copy of it. But I listened to that, reread that, and it was just as fresh and just as rich as it was then. And I thought, God, let us have times like this when our children know at least this basic prayer. Because it's powerfully, it implies so much and so powerfully. So I'd say when the, Lord, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him to teach them to pray, you must remember when he used the word teach, they asked him to teach them about prayer. He gave them an outline. It could be seen as just an outline for instruction. But back of that outline are concepts that we find in the Word of God that enrich our appreciation of who God was. So it's very instructive, but I say Jesus meant it as a prayer. Praying with understanding. 
Praying with knowledge and understanding makes it better a prayer, makes it more of you engaged. So study your scriptures, learn who God is, because this prayer starts with one thing, showing us who God is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, that's the middle part. Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And then it goes into the things we may ask God for. Ordinary things, simple things, basic things. Nothing is off the table when you pray to God. He cares about you because you care about stuff. You have need for stuff. You're in this world, he's in another world uh, of another nature. But he's inviting us to feel comfortable praying for daily bread, today's bread, not tomorrow's bread, not for wealth, for today's bread, for this moment's need, for anything you have. So if you're a student, you can pray for bread when you go to take a test. Lord, give me some smarts up here. Remind me what I've already studied. Bring to mind that which I need to pass this exam. Bring calmness on my soul. If you're If you're somebody in a crisis of finances, you can say, Lord, give me what I need to get through this crisis, this moment. What enablement, what gift. He's saying, simple thing. I won't go any deeper into that, but the second half of the prayer is all about the things you might pray for that concern your nature, and we'll, we'll touch that in a little bit. So it's an instructive prayer, and it's a rich prayer because it's instructive, but it's also powerful in that it enables us to have actual words that we can say, and we can say in a short amount of time, that if we have understood the concepts behind them, just take us right into the presence of God. How rich it is. How wise was our Lord. Here's the thing about Jesus. Everything with Jesus is so simple the simplest child can appreciate some part of it. So simple, so basic. Jesus didn't come into the world to call us to Rosicrucianism or some hidden knowledge and truth, though I have kind of at times gone down that path seeking deeper knowledge. He didn't come for that. He came to bring us into the depths of simplicity. The simple things. I don't mean you shouldn't study, you shouldn't know more, you shouldn't dig deeper, but don't do it for its sake, self's sake. Do it for the enrichment it brings into your life so that you can communicate to others the wealth of the simple things of God. So he taught them the simple prayer that they could pray in simplicity in moments of need. When I pray the Lord's Prayer, I don't say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name anymore. Probably started out that way. I don't remember. I had to memorize it. It's like learning the lines in a play. When you're being a character, the more you're trying to act. First thing you've got to do when you're in a play, by the way, if you're ever in a play, just learn the lines. Just learn the fundamentals. Don't worry about where you're going to stand, what you're going to say, how you're going to look, what you're going to, you know. Just learn your lines. That's why we study the scripture. Then as you get deeper into the understanding of those lines, 
it'll be more real when you deliver it because you will merge your soul with the concept of who that person was and what, where they were standing at that time. See, there's the way we ought to read Scripture is to understand who they were in context, understand it with your head, and as you meditate on this, then you begin to deliver it with a, your voice, but merge with their voice. You know what I'm saying? Things become more profound to you as you go on. They begin to move you as you go on. But first of all, this prayer is sufficient to be heard of God from the simplest soul, praying from the simplest of motives with the, with, with the most urgency of heart. Pray when you pray. Pray with some form of urgency in God, some understanding what you're praying is. Don't do it by rote. Don't do it by some kind of blind liturgy that really bothers me when we read liturgy without, you know, blah, 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 blah. We could call it blah, blah. God reads the heart. Read the words, and as you can, as you read them, put yourself, let them penetrate your heart and say them with as much sincerity as you can muster. When you go to church to hear a sermon, be sincere. Be trying to plummet what is being taught. Get down into the core. Add yourself to lift up the speaker. Pray up the message. We are participants in the glory of God, and we never let rote take over. If we do, we're just like the heathen. Jesus said, when you pray in Matthew's gospel, don't pray as a heathen do with known for their many words. He didn't mean don't have many words. Just don't pray the way the heathen do with our many words, meaningless words. You can enrich your vocabulary in prayer, but this is a good place to start. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell them. He gave them a prayer they could pray, and then he taught them the meaning of it. And he taught them that it was sufficient, if you meant it, for God to hear you, and that there was more to be learned. He took them on a journey and taught them more about it. So this is a prayer. It has clear, organized structure. It could be an instructive. Uh, you can see it divisible into two parts. Uh, it tells you all about the nature of God in one half and about what you can pray for in the second half. And then we have what we call a doxology, tacked on to it. Not in the Scriptures, but from the Scriptures. Why, why do we pray, since it's not scriptural? Uh, yours is the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's because when the church, early church first prayed this prayer together congregationally, I suspect they sang that doxology. Later they said it. Because they had too many people who couldn't sing, I guess. Who knows? But I, I think it's become part of our church tradition to add that, for thine is the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because it was what they sang after they had heard the word or spoke after they heard the, they prayed together that prayer. 
and it becomes part of our church tradition to add that preamble. It wasn't in the early manuscript, uh, unless it was written in the margin somewhere. <laughs> we know that, uh, that chronology. Now, those words, by the way, too, are scriptural. It comes out of Chronicles. First Chronicles 29 has these concepts. 29 verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. You're the echo. And the power and the glory. You're the echo in what we pray. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above all. Holy is your name. You see, the spirit of it is right there in in that that, uh, postlude. Now, I want to just hit quickly the words. We have an instructive piece here that's theologically deep and profound and which we can pray. And any way you use it, it works powerfully in your spiritual life. The conclusion of it, in the second part, you pray for daily bread. It's something for your life, your physical body. When you ask us to forgive us our debts, you're praying for your soul. Those things that defuse your devotion to God, you're asking him to forgive you your debts as you forgive others. So he's saying here, to be forgiven, you've got to forgive. That's an understood principle. And then you uh, say, lead us not into temptation. That's a difficult one, because we usually think of temptation as uh, uh, evil, you know devil whispering in the ears. Well, it is. It's testing. It means testing also. Lead us not into testing, unnecessary testing. Some testing God sends to us because it's necessary to instruct us in the way to go. See how we're going to apply what we know. But some of it comes from Satan. And in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer he gave to the disciples, he said, uh, Deliver us from the evil one. Well, I've been praying that one a lot lately. Because I know who the author of evil and testing is. All testing. He's the reason why we get tested. He's the one that ruined the first uh, scene, the first thing, God's plan, or tried to. So listen to the prayer. Our. Not my. Some of us think personally still, you know, we still think personally. He doesn't belong to me, he belongs to all of us, all of us who believe. Our Father, he's only Father to those who have assented for him to be Father, who consented to recognize him as the benevolent, kind, and giving Father. You know why the, most of the world doesn't see God, really, many, many people in the world? They don't see him as a father. This is a revolutionary prayer. When the missionaries introduce God as father to people, it changes their lives. We've heard that all of our lives. He's a father. He's a caring, benevolent, giving, behind it all, father. He's the head of our world. He's the head of our table. He He is all sitting there 
for our benefit. He has no, you know, some fathers now today don't have the heart of a father, so they leave their families and vacate them mentally and emotionally and other ways. But being a father, a father is very important in the world that we live in. It's important to our psychology, important to our spirituality. He said, when you pray, remember God's father. He's the father. He's the object. Don't call any man father with the sense of they're, they're your ultimate. Because you have but one father in heaven. He's the epitome and the nature of it all. Our father. I hope we as a church, realize more and more how much we're on this journey together. You and I, I need you, you need me. I need to be among you, you need to be with me. We are a bunch of people, we're a variegated crowd. But we need, that, we need those differences in order to see the wholeness, the completeness. And we find it in every circle where we find believers. There is commonness between us and worldly people, and we must see them as potentially God's children, but they're not God's children. They can be and should be, consider themselves that. In the moment they do, they flee to him to be, his de- to, him to be their father. There is a distinction. You can speak in my life from a different level than people of the world can with a different perspective, because your roots are in the, if they're in the Word of God and in God Himself, you can speak to me better. He's our Father. Teach me about my, our Father. Teach me by the way you live, by the way you walk, by the way you greet me, by the way you think of me, by the way we do to each other what we should. And if we're not, let's correct each other, so that we may all be children of His in our action. So our Father who art in heaven. And if I stop here, and this is all I deliver from the rest of it, I'm going to try to get to the end. I want you to understand this, who art in heaven. We say in heaven. That's a comprehensive term, heaven. In biblical times, I think Matthew's gospel in the Greek, it was said, who art in the heavens, plural. Because Biblical people thought of heaven in dimensional terms. The breath I breathe is heaven. The atmosphere around me is part of is a heaven. The atmosphere of the earth is heaven. The, the planets are heaven. And the cosmos is a heaven. Or however far it reaches is part of the heavens. The otherness, that's what heaven is, otherness to us in this physical world. We live in a physical world. But heaven is what? Near. It's not out there. This is meant to be understood when our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, and that double, that underscores, hallowed be thy name, means our Father who are in, a, in near us, not far out, closer than hands of feet, the breath we breathe, receive you, the Spirit of God, Jesus said, as he breathed on his disciples, as God breathed on Adam. Receive the breath of God. Heaven and earth merge. And God is with us. 
He is Emmanuel, God with us. You see, God is not distant. You know what the problem with the world is? They don't like him when he's close. God makes the world uncomfortable. People want a deity that is uh, distant. And so they think they want him close. They want him to meet their needs. No, all they want is that arm to come out of some kind of vapor or some kind of face and give them what they want and pull it back. Don't get too close to me. I come here to worship you so it's on my terms, not on yours. I'll burn this candle, I'll light this light, I'll say these words and move away after you give me what I want. That's the spirit of the law, the spiritual man's depraved nature. We want to keep God distance because, let me tell you, when you see him as you, he is, you will be uncomfortable. And if there's sin in your life, you'll flee from him, or try to, and if there's heart for God in your life, you'll throw yourself on, his, on your face and cry out, Oh, Lord God, I knew you not. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Never forget that. He's holy. No word games here. He's different from you and me. And we should want to be like him because that's wholeness. That is wholeness. That is what we want to be like in our deepest yearnings. But we keep trying to play games with God so we can bargain with this distant God to get pieces of what we want when we want it. Religion plays checkers with God. Or some who are more smarter than I am play chess with God. It's always a quid quo pro, pro quo with God in religion. But with, with, with Christians, it's never that. He gave it all. All we need to do is receive it. And when we receive him, he begins to work in us that which is good and well-pleasing in God's sight. And if we fight that, he makes us more uncomfortable until we come into more harmony with him. That's the God I worship, the Father. My dad corrected me a lot. He corrected me pretty severely a couple times. Some that he was probably ashamed of, and I didn't want to have any more of that. But, you know, he loved me. In his imperfections, he loved me. But I, my God loves me in perfection. He took my blows upon himself and is willing to let it go right there. We don't have to be tested anymore if we are willing to live in the Father's presence. This holy God who called us into his place. Well, I told you if I didn't get any further than that, I won't. But I'm going to give you an assignment. Don't take our Father and our Father's prayer through Christ for granted. I urge you, go home and get some books if it'll help you. Get into the Word. Mull this over. Ruminate upon it. Reflect upon it. Like I said, there's a theology course or two in here, a few books, and there's insight into this passage that comes out of this book that will in wealth help you to appreciate God with a great and warm heart. 
so that when you praise him, you can hardly stand it. It's so good. For thine is the power, the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. That's all it's ever going to be is his kingdom. He rules. He's going to rule the universe as he does already, but we just, some haven't found it yet. There's going to be anything butting up against that kingdom. His kingdom's going to be it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some of them won't walk with him. They'll be running the other way and say, He was Lord! Trying to hide in the darkness in which God will follow. I, I still think that hell is hell because God is present there to people who don't want him. Think on that one. Because it can't be fled from, even in Sheol, thou art there. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All the best in me yearns for is in you. Amen. Well, last week, uh, I uh, tasted a little bit of everything that people had in our family. We had 18 people together. Big, long table in the living room, everybody together babbling at the table. It's a happy moment of life, happy moment of the season. And uh, I, I say I gain weight. And the reason I gain weight is because of those people. We had all that good variety on the table, and I just had to taste a little bit of everything. Only trouble is, as my wife reminds me, it's not what you eat, it's how much. So I stand corrected. But we're coming to a table here that represents in its physical dearth, sparseness, the grandest table 